0: My name is Isabel Ling, and I'm the assistant editor at Mold Magazine. So today we're with Adriana Gallo, who is an artist based out of Brooklyn, New York. She writes a column for Mold's called Convivial Cosmogenies, and today we're going to be talking about her latest column called Cooking for the End of the World, where she writes about preppers and food for the end of the world. So Adriana... What got you interested in preppers and what um, their eating habits are?
1: In general, as a school of thought, preppers are really intensely concerned with this idea of experiencing the negative, whether that's a negative emotion, a negative physical feeling, the absence or loss of something. They're really quite like on a basic level, on an ideological level, concerned about it it's all about avoiding the negative essentially. So that can be anything from food or water or the feeling you have if someone dies or uh, even on the most superficial level, just there being less of what you want at the grocery store, they're really, really worried about. Um, And this sort of fear is endemic to neoliberal capitalism. It's the driver for this prepping culture, but prepping culture sort of more broadly speaking, survivalist culture, Um, originally in the 70s preppers also went by retreaters which they sort of abandoned because it seemed a little it has sort of like a cowardly slant to it that I think was unappealing Um, but in general survivalist and prepper impulses are fundamentally a product of this neoliberal atomization and they're a reaction to that alienating quality of you could call it the Anthropocene, cap, uh, like capitalocene is sort of a trendy word for it, late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but Marx essentially describes it as this metabolic rift between humans and nature. Um, and that fundamental alienation spurs this impulse for essentially all cultures of preppers from the sort of like conservative uh, pioneer side of things, but also to the sort of homesteader back to the land, hippie side of things. It's really not, it's not as politically far right as it might seem. It is this sort of intense reaction to alienation that tends to bring out the emphasis on the individual over the collaborative or the communal.
0: So it seems that, um... sorry, I was going to go off. You can go off script scripted. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, So it seems like um, preppers are dealing a lot with anxiety around change um, and sort of managing change. And in this piece, you kind of relate how preservation um, is a way to harness change across um um as a cooking method and across society so could you talk a bit more about that
1: sure Uh, preservation is essentially based on this idea that food or ingredients have an imperative to transform so the action of preservation or a fermentation there's a few different ways to go to go about it some stall that transformation st- some sort of work alongside it some encourage it there's sort of this broad sort of spectrum of ways to encounter it but preservation at least as it fits into prepper culture is really about the stalling and the idea that through accumulation of material of capital you can essentially stave off death that death, You can not be fully immortal, but it is this way of completely avoiding the idea that something might go bad because it reminds you that maybe you won't be around long enough even to eat some of these products. But there's this intense worry that if you don't have enough things, then you will become closer and closer to having to reckon with the end, whether it's the end of you, your family, society, those that sort of existing on the brink of that is the fundamental worry and then leads to this very particular kind of preservation that you see within prepper culture and prepper cookbooks and
0: uh, bunker uh, starter kits, that sort of thing. So for this piece from Mole, you write that preservation in the hands of humans is a process used to control loss. And you note that preserved food can fall into either one of two categories. Yeah. So
1: in opposition to that sort of prepper forever food, there is this category which I sort of call traditional, traditional meaning uh, coming from the root tradere, so it's the Latin root which basically means to hand over or there's an exchange that happens. So thinking about traditional foods as these long-standing continuing evolving processes, these human processes that are passed down, they're not necessary, it's not anti-technology, it's not anti-change it's not anti-advancement but there is a continuity there's this handing over there's this tracing that you can do in a very particular way so that is sort of where I couch the traditional Mm -hmm. Um, so that can be something like bread cheese miso all of these things can be made in a hyper-industrial way certainly they're not inherently traditional foods but they come from a tradition of fermentation of preservation, of extending the lifespan of ingredients, of taking advantage of surplus of agriculture, that sort of thing.
0: You know, with these foods, there's um, a sort of liveliness that exists in relation to death, as you um, talked er- about earlier, and that you talked about throughout the piece. So I was wondering if you delve more into this idea of what liveliness is. Sure, there's
1: a really beautiful piece uh, by Byung Chul Han called Capitalism and the Death Drive. He really sort of delves into this same topic through a bunch of different lenses. There are quite a few bodies of his work that deal with a very similar thing, but he understands it as liveliness is friendliness, which I think is quite compelling. Basically, that life, as he says it, the life is that life is friendly that is able to die. So this liveliness comes from the potential or imperative or uh, inevitable end essentially so in that container in that contained world lifespan exists this liveliness and without that end without the possibility or inevitable end that can't exist that sort of like effervescent uh changing and alive lively
0: quality can't exist mm um but earlier you mentioned there's another category of preserved foods. so I was wondering if you could talk about that in relation, as, relation to liveliness and death as well
1: for sure uh, this is sort of it's an incomplete binary it's uh it's a binary that I like to try on I think it's a fun one to sort of sit within and explore but essentially on the other side if you're talking about these like really lively effervescent uh potentially ending life cycles there are the ones that we sort of talked about earlier with the peppers that extend indefinitely, uh, the current state of something. So rather than embracing change over time or transformation, transforming an ingredient, uh, it really seeks to preserve it in its current state for as long as possible, indefinitely, if possible. Um, so that can be something like a super basic canned vegetable, but it can also be, Uh, something much more technologically advanced which uh, is often the case
0: yeah in your piece you actually mentioned MREs or um, military rations right those are a great example and because they are also
1: they're not raw ingredients that are being preserved they're like a full experience it's like a meatloaf or like chata masala or whatever it is it's like this very particular experience that is being transported Uh, it's this insistence that you can have a duplicated experience, even if you're completely out of context, you're not, you're eating this out of the bag. MREs, for anyone who doesn't know, it's not, um, it's a very simple acronym for a very clunky phrase, which is meals ready to eat, which is insane to me, but um, they come in bags. So you essentially hydrate and uh, they heat from within. There's That's sort of the technology, Um, but it's supposed to simulate at least I guess the experience of a mac and cheese, but eaten out of a bag. Um, And I think that's sort of the ultimate version. And you see a lot of uh, MREs sold as domestic food options on some of these prepper supply websites as well. So it's not just uh, a military thing. Um, There are also communities of people that like to seek out old or uh, pseudo expired MREs to try. Um, So there's a big community around finding like Vietnam War era MREs and seeing if they make them sick, which is incredible.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the meatloaf and the chana masala. So I'm kind of wondering if there are any like um, patterns you saw in what kind of meals people were preserved for MREs or wanted to eat in the future, I guess, in this format.
1: They seem to almost fall under the category of like, it feels like airplane food to me in some ways. It's sort of, it has all of the elements of a meal. They tend to lean quite American, um, but then they throw in sort of something that is still quite American. They'll throw in maybe like a Chinese dish that brings to mind like Chinese takeout, something like that, or it will have this sort of broad cookbook, sort of pan cookbook Palette to it. It's not very specific. They don't seem to be, from what I understand, to be especially flavorful. They sort of try and hit some key marks and I think really lean on savory in particular as this like anchor.
0: Yeah, it seems like they are these sort of time capsules for nostalgia in the case of, you know, a post-apocalyptic world. Um, And so earlier in this article, you kind of talk about this concept of worlding, um, which is a concept from the Italian philosopher, Frederico Campagna. Um, So I'm interested, you know, in the eyes of the preppers who are creating a world um, or idealizing a world in the future where they no longer have um, the same conditions or things or luxury goods that they're familiar with? um, What sort of worlds are preppers trying to create and how does worlding sort of relate to preppers?
1: Sure. So worlding, at least as um, Federico Campagna positions it, he sort of borrows it from Heidegger and changes it a little bit. He's thinking about it as a metaphysical concept. So it's essentially when you wake up in the morning, how you order the world around you. And that can be a collective ordering, or it can be an individual ordering. It's a negotiation that all of us make, but essentially worlding as this representation or reconstruction of the discrete experiences or perceptions or sensations that you encounter and how you uh, not even explain them to yourself, but just how you process them.
0: So on a very
1: basic level, that's at least how he understands it. Um, What I really take from it is worlding as an action Uh, rather than something that happens to you. It can happen to you. You can encounter someone else's or another community or uh, another world. You can encounter those perceptions, but the activity of worlding is this literally representational, representational reproductive act. Um, So in the case of preppers in particular, it's building this, Uh, it's almost building a mythology, right? It's building a world in which this all makes coherent sense. It all makes complete sense that you should be spending a portion of your income every month to build the stockpile that you are also encouraged to actually dip into before anything bad happens. There's this sort of encouraged consumption and turnover. Uh, It's this reinvention of the wheel, which is sort of strange that it's not as if, humans have never encountered, encountered famine or absence of resources or extreme uh, extreme climate change or uh, even a, a nomadic society moving to a new place and it having changed somehow. There are tools and methods or there's there are worlding activities that exist already. The impulse of the prepper is to sort of commodify those things, to be uh, happy to be sold those things in order to produce this sort of simulation of the life they already live by bringing those things as close together as possible. So essentially it's uh, continuous. So say there's some, there's a virus and uh, we don't have, and all the supermarkets are empty. Exactly. it uh, You have the stockpile of things that you've already been eating. Uh, you have your uh, concentrated coffee creamer that will last you until you're 85 so fundamentally nothing has changed there's nothing to lose essentially so all of this worlding activity has become in service of the maintenance of this continuity between pre and post apocalypse or pre and post end so you never encounter the end really or you avoid that negative encounter as much as possible
0: right and so I'm interested in that because um with preppers it seems like um this concept of survival food comes into question and what survival food means for different people means a lot of different things and it's interesting that um so many of these survivors look to the military as a model for what kinds of foods they might be eating um so in your essay you mention how um certain cultures have incorporated the sort of inheritance of military foods into their um, everyday recipes. And I was kind of wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. Those are
1: in these are sort of generalizations. There's loads of examples of this within the US as well. Um, You can point to microwave meals are a great simple example of application of military technology domestically into your everyday food life. But internationally it tends to be most prevalent in places that have encountered uh, some major global conflict that has basically disrupted uh, food infrastructure as it exists, and either with the intention to replace it or just as a byproduct, Um, so incorporation of military ration foods into sort of vernacular cooking traditions is super, super common. You see that in Korea, you see it in Vietnam in particular as well, Um, the U.S. or uh, Britain tends to be tend to be the two uh, sort of uh, linchpins for this sort of change. Um, so in, you see it in Hawaii is also a great example. You see a lot of uh, processed foods incorporated uh, into dishes that have rice or fresh fish and that sort of thing. Um, uh, one example I was thinking a lot about was uh, different sort of preserved milk or dairy products. So you're evaporated or your condensed milk and the use of those in a whole slew of beverages across Asia and South America. They're used in uh, an incredible number of recipes. And it's not that they are inherently good or inherently bad to use. There's not that, that sort of, if you want to measure how good they are, there's a whole slew of other things you can think about, but they don't necessarily correlate to the erasing of a culture all the time they are often the sort of impulsive of humans is to incorporate it at least to some extent um so unless it's a very targeted effort which there also has been to erase a particular food culture in the u.s that's been very effectively done we essentially don't have a cooking culture or uh in the way that a lot of these other cultures do even just the act of cooking with this ingredient is transformative and is uh does contribute to this liveliness that uh, I talk about, and it is interesting it is a bit of an ethical gray area from case to case, but I don't think you can really argue that they lack liveliness
0: right because like you were mentioning, like it brings to mind things like you know Vietnamese coffee or mm-hmm. um, you know, condensed milk is such a distinct flavor in a lot of um, Asian cuisines also that's taken on its new livelihood. So I was wondering um, if you could talk a bit more about um, what this um, liveliness might look like um, in terms of processed foods. Something
1: that I was really interested in, in this piece in particular, was essentially being able to talk about this what I see is a fetishization of preservation of fermentation as inherently revolutionary or anti-capitalist or anti-establishment. It isn't in and of itself, those things. And I think it's often presented as this uh, magic alternative to all of these things, but those are techniques uh, first and foremost, and you can encounter them in any uh, a Hershey chocolate bar as a fermented product, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't hold water. And I was really excited in this piece to sort of dig into how on the other side of things, if you're saying, okay, well, industrial products are also uh, engaging in some of these techniques, what is it that introduces this liveliness? And it really is the use of these ingredients and how they become part of a broader food culture and the worlding that goes with this sort of cultural production and reproduction more than it is the consumption
0: of the thing. It's the use of the thing. It's the action. Right. In this piece, you kind of use this um, phrase that I thought was really compelling and you call preservation a sort of stewardship of rot. And I think that points to this evolving relationship between um, humans and this, lo- uh, this process of life yeah it's
1: I think as someone who at least nominally dabbles in different kinds of fermentation it often feels like you're setting up the parameters for the thing you're sort of making a little house for it or like making the bed for it or like tilling earth or something for it and it is going to do exactly what it's going to do there's only so much control you have over it so it feels sort of uh, like it's stewardship it's uh, you're like a goat herd or something it's herding cats whatever it is, but it feels very. It feels very much like you have to be understanding of the imperatives of the organisms that you are encouraging you're not really I also sort of object to the positioning of some of these organisms as collaborators there's sometimes an imposition of agency uh, when in reality it's more of a cultivation it's cultivating a garden more than it is a a professional collaboration or an interpersonal collaboration Um, and I think that stewardship is the It's the term I've become the most comfortable with in negotiating my own uh, experiments or my own material use of some of these processes.
0: Yeah, so um, this piece in itself is accompanied with a recipe for um, a preserved fruit salad. And um, I wanted to give you the space to speak a little bit about your experiments with preservation. Sure.
1: Yeah, the preserved fruit salad
0: could easily become a rotten fruit salad if you wanted (laughs) it to be,
1: um, which I also really love. Um, I've been experimenting with fermentation of whole fruits and some vegetables in beeswax. Um, It creates an almost complete seal of basically whatever is in or on the fruit to begin with. So if there's some little thing that makes its way in that doesn't necessarily make it taste good, then Sort of stuck with it. Um, it's best at about five days if you want to have like, plums, are really beautiful for it. Um, apples make intuitive sense. You sort of, it almost vinifies the fruit in this very particular way. So you get a little bit of fizz, you get a little bit more acidity, but then it turns a corner and gets uh, closer and closer to what you would see as rotten, or there might be a bit of mold that takes over. It's not quite like it's so not unlike a sourdough starter or a kombucha, but there are a few more variables. So it varies from fruit to fruit. There's a lot to negotiate, and then I I found it's a really interesting way to encounter some of these raw ingredients. Whether where you're buying the fruit from changes a great deal, whether it's in season or not, um, all of these things become like they are in cooking. These they become these sort of like really big moves they become amplified by the cooking and the preservation process and that amplification i find especially interesting
0: if the readers to go through this piece they'll see um images of the sculptures you've made with some of these preserved fruits and um you're an artist and this is part of working with food as a part of your art practice and art making Um, across our all of our mold columns with you you've created sculptural works that are really wonderful and illuminating and often tied thematically to the piece itself. So um, what is your art making process and an approach to these specific um, works?
1: Sure. So I sort of in this particular piece, you see the preserved fruit. Those fruits have been in a box for about two or three months, something like that. They went really, they went a very, very long time. Some of them ooze, some of them don't. The pear is like super dry and then you get in there and you really see the transformation that's happened. Um, In general, in my work, I'm interested in a range of notions of the edible and consumption as a broader theme and metaphor, but also as this sort of implied potential gesture in encountering some of the work. Um, In... In my work, they're not necessarily archival, which is sort of the point they change over time um, or they can be remade. So there uh, are bread sculptures in particular that I work with where I tend to reproduce the same suite over and over and over again. So there's a performance in the repetition and the reproduction of the same forms over and over again, the iteration and the sort of micro changes that happen with those things. Um, In general, I'm interested in materials that move between particulate and whole and back again so they move from uh, solid to liquid to powder all of these sort of uh, mutable states are of particular interest to me and the evidence of gesture of my gesture or of gestures that I create the parameters for whether it's something that rots or something that dries or something that bakes those sort of Transformative gestures. I want to be apparent in the product. Um, and I find that potential for edibility allows for a more direct relationship between a viewer and a work because it has a particularly sensual quality that feels knowable in a way that a lot of uh, a, a painting, for instance, might feel a little bit you don't really know what it's what it feels like to make the thing or to touch the thing or to really encounter the thing but to present somebody with something that at least superficially resembles something they've consumed before creates a very quick link and allows for deviation in form or deviation in presentation that otherwise might be a little less accessible or a little less easy to digest
0: right Um, you were talking about this potential of edibility and in terms at least with the preserved fruit I'm wondering is there an element of eating here too like are you eating um, rotten fruits as taste test
1: I've eaten pretty I didn't eat these ones because these went quite a long time but I've tried them up until I think, like, a, I've done a few weeks in. Um, at a certain point, they become less and less pleasant. They don't feel unsafe, but maybe I'm dumb. Um, so, but I feel like you know when it's unsafe. I know everything's edible once, but uh, so far it hasn't been
0: uh, an issue, I guess. Yeah, because um in this piece, you kind of talk about this human confrontation of death through decay, and that's what drives us away from rot. Um, So I'm interested in your own personal experience with um, Facing Decay. Did it it elicit disgust? And maybe if we could talk about that sort of. Mm. um,
1: Yeah, no, disgust is something I think think quite a lot about. I think there is also in cultures with more and more space between you and cooking, with more alienation from that process, there becomes a lower tolerance for those flavors there becomes a lower tolerance for a fermenty flavor or for something that um, uh, challenges you texturally because it feels close to decay maybe. Um, for me, I'm wondering, do I have, I'm not a very picky eater baseline. I don't really have hang-ups about decay or flavor. Or texture in that way. I don't eat meat or fish. I haven't since I was eight or nine. Uh, and I think that began as a, this sort of core gut, something like disgust. It was disturbing to me, I think, which is like very close to disgust. And, uh, I have, I have a justification for it, whatever it is, but at age eight or nine, it was a very, basic feeling of being disturbed by it and that uh, I think my tolerance for that feeling is generally quite high maybe be not because of that but I remember thinking quite a lot about it as a small child and it interests me in my practice as well and I find sometimes that I have to check in with others to see how where pieces are hitting on sort of that spectrum because sometimes my understanding of what where it starts to be disturbing or starts to be disgusting is not quite exactly where it begins or ends it's subjective obviously and it's cultural inherently but I think that line is quite interesting and what you can do to mitigate that feeling in form or color or odor all of those things sort of Uh, interplay to either offset or amplify that
0: feeling and I feel like preservation is a sort of way to make a home in fear or make a home with change Um, so my last question for you is as the apocalypse seems to be ever present every day in different ways or as we head towards um, a sort of inevitable change um, what Role can preservation play in facilitating this transition? I
1: think it forces an understanding of end. It forces a reconciliation of being alive with the potential to be dead in a very simple way. It forces you to understand that on an individual level, on a collective level, that liveliness can be quite disturbing, I think. Uh, It can be disgusting in that way because it sort of indicates the finality of something. But I think there is not comfort, but through the action of worlding, through the action of preservation or fermentation or cooking, just baseline, you encounter on, uh, in a very personal way, these ideas that salt doesn't solve, but it sort of reduces that space between you and the thing it counters that alienation that encouraged alienation through uh, purchasing or through pure consumption in contributing actively to that cultural reproduction to that worlding effort to uh, maintaining whatever fermentation practice or uh, even just understanding it more there is I think something really Special in the mundane and domestic versions of those processes that allows you to encounter some of these bigger, more disturbing, or uh, more existential ideas in a way that is quite manageable and uh, literally digestible, but something that allows for it to be transformed into something that isn't couched in the sphere of the negative.
0: Well, Adriana, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you.